The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Concerns growing over the stability of what was a tech-focused lender in the Valley. Many called it the backbone of Silicon Valley. It lost nearly $2 billion selling assets following a greater-than-expected decline in deposits. But here's the problem. Venture capitalists reportedly advising their portfolio companies to pull their money from the bank. Those concerns, of course, rippling through the banking sector. Uh, The KBW Bank Index posted its biggest drop since the pandemic. Regional banks hit hard as well. You're looking at those stocks this morning. We're going to discuss this right now uh, because of uh, the potential for contagion risk. Yeah, so Andrew, I've spent yesterday afternoon into the evening talking to founders, talking to VCs. And the consensus is people are saying, if you're going to panic, it's best to panic early. You don't want to be last in line to trying to get your money out. And so if you've got more than 250K, it's best to move it around. How, how concerned should people be, not just though about Silicon Valley Bank itself, but whether we think there's a contagion, whether we think this is going to spread? So the takeaway I've had from the people I talked to is this is like 2008, but only for crypto and startups. And so the hope is that it stays there. I think the concern in terms of knock-on effect is, you know, I talked to a founder last night who said, I don't have any money at SVP. However, I'm trying to extend a debt refinancing. And Silicon Valley Bank and others were specialists in this, and they're not doing it anymore. And it's risk off. And so I'm not going to be able to make payroll potentially in, in the next coming weeks if I can't do this refinancing. So the knock-on effect is you could have, and we've speculated for a while that there needs to be an event in which all of these unprofitable startups that exist that were created in the the zero money interest era, there needs to be a reckoning there. And it's possible that this is a thing that incites that. It is not clear. I want to be careful to say that, but in terms of knock-on effects, I would look there first. Hey, Hugh, look, I think this is a bigger issue. There are cracks everywhere. This is what happens when you have the Fed raising rates you have liquidity getting drawn in, and it's probably not surprising that one of the places that this would be an issue would either be a crypto bank or a bank that specializes in in tech startups that are having problems getting money elsewhere, so they need their money back. But I, I do think there's a bigger problem that this is highlighting. And if you look at any of the big banks yesterday that were down, 7.8%, 7.8%, you're looking week-to-date numbers here, Citigroup down 8% for the week-to-date, Bank of America down 11%, Wells Fargo down by 13%, JP Morgan was down significantly, Schwab was down 11 or 12% yesterday, and it's because a lot of these banks hold something, you know, they, they, it's an accounting rule that says these banks can hold bonds and not mark them mark to market, they can mark them hold to maturity, which is fine. If you plan on holding some of these bonds that you've been holding all along to maturity, you can do that. And those are your best plans that you're holding all these bonds to maturity. But if you have customers who want their money back, you can't hold them to maturity. You have to sell them. And in some cases at a very big loss because bond prices have been collapsing this year as the Fed has raised interest rates. I think that's when you look at some of the bigger banks, what the concern is. People are just digging through. And this may be a case of sell now, ask questions later. But people are digging through looking for these hold to maturity sort of situations where the accounting numbers are valuing the bonds at a much higher level than they'd be worth if you were forced to sell them today. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. More turbulence in the markets this week as regulators shut down a Silicon Valley bank. 
after the bank run doomed the tech-focused lenders' plans to raise fresh capital. FDIC took control of the bank and its deposits. This is the first canary in the coal mine. It's starting to sing of more financial disruptions ahead as the Fed continues its relentless rate hike cycle. In other news, the administration proposed its fiscal 2024 budget with massive new spending that will raise the national debt by $19 trillion by the end of the decade, along with a $4.7 trillion massive tax increase that would impact everyone from individuals to corporations. Thoughts of another financial crisis emerging sent stock prices reeling this week. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. My technician this week is David Keller from Stock Charts. Dave sees more uncertainty and volatility for the markets as the Fed drives the market narrative. Dave loves the setup for gold and is bullish on the precious metal. Dave will be followed by an in-depth interview with Simon Michaud as we discuss the return of peak oil and resource scarcity this decade. Finally, another discussion of Smart Macro with Chris Sheridan and Chris Paplava. But first, let's find out the stories that moved the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Ryan? This week, there were two key events that influenced the financial markets. The first was Fed Chairman Powell's semi-annual monetary policy report before the Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs on Tuesday and Wednesday. The second catalyst was the dual announcement that Silvergate Capital is liquidating Silvergate Bank and Silicon Valley Bank had quickly moved from trying to raise funds to becoming controlled by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as a failed bank, which is roughly about $175 billion in customer deposits, according to the New York Times. The bank is currently working to negotiate a sale. Uh, the company was halted from trading in the wake of the news. And of course, we also got a lot of employment data this week that investors were happy to see because the JOLTS report showed fewer job openings, unemployment claims rose, and the jobs report came in well below January's surge. But these economic events largely took a backseat to the other two stories. So let's talk about Powell's testimony and question and answer with the banking committee, which started on Tuesday and ended on Wednesday. The financial markets were largely influenced by his opening testimony. The key focus was on Powell's mention of strong economic data announced in February and that the terminal rate will likely be higher than December's estimates with the month's FOMC projections, and that the Fed could step up rate increases if necessary. So let's tune in to hear what he had to say on it. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If a totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Restoring price stability will likely require that we maintain a restrictive stance of monetary policy for some time. In the questions and answers section of the discussion, Powell acknowledged that the economic data thus far doesn't suggest the Fed has over-tightened and that the Fed has more work to do. Hopefully this won't go down as the equivalent of Bernanke's subprime comments in 2007 that it was likely to be contained. The reaction to his open remarks was immediate. The CME FedWatch tool, which helps track Fed funds futures contracts, saw the probability of a 50 basis point hike this month rise from 31.4% Monday to 70.5% Tuesday after Powell's comments. The two-year Treasury yield rose from 4.85% before the open to 4.96%. 
and the 10-year yield rose from 3.93% before the open to 4 Stocks sold off as well with the S&P 500 sectors down between 1% for consumer staples to as high as 2.5% for the financial sector. The second catalyst this week that sent new shocks through the market was the dual news that Silvergate Capital was liquidating Silvergate Bank and SVB Financial moved from trying to raise funds Thursday to falling under the control of the FDIC as the largest failed bank since 2008. Thursday, Silvergate was down 42%, and SVB Financial was down 60%. Now, SVB is a financial bank largely uh, lending out funds to venture capital firms in the Silicon Valley and uh, with other large technology companies. There is a saying that something always breaks when the Fed raises rates, and fear of another systemic fall in banking has taken hold. The S&P 500 turned positive briefly Friday, On the jobs report, however, news hit Friday mid-trading that SIVB, stock symbol for SVB Bank, was being shut down by regulators and assets were being turned over to the FDIC. Stories about Silicon Valley Bank will be an interesting read over the next few days, but to summarize, the bank invested in long-dated securities such as long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities while interest rates were low to score easy profits, something all banks do. With the Fed raising short-term rates and due to inflation, long-term rates rose and the value of those long-term bonds fell last year. The startup environment has slowed, dropping the demand on loans and depositors began requesting funds, forcing the bank to sell those long-dated bonds for losses. Thursday, the bank admitted it had lost $2 billion in market losses from forced sales. As a result of banking issues Thursday and Friday, probabilities for a hike in March shifted back in favor of a quarter point versus half a point. Investors sought safety by Friday with the 10-year treasury yield falling back down to 3.69%, down almost 27 basis points this week as investors bought more bonds. Also up Friday was gold to 1865 spot and silver up to 20 and a half spot. To summarize some of the economic numbers this week, factory orders declined 1.6% in January, while shipments increased 0.7%. Consumer credit increased by $14.8 billion in January, but that pace is seen as moderating. Job openings totaled $10.8 million, down from $11.2 million. Unemployment claims rose last week to 211000 up 21000 and continuing claims increased 69000 Non-farm payrolls added 311,000 jobs in February, above expectations, but down from the January surge. Unemployment rate rose from 3.4% to 3.6%, and hourly earnings came in softer. The three-month annualized average dropped from 4.6% in January to 3.6% in February. Overall, the employment data showed a softening in the labor market, which came as a boon for stock investors and shifted sentiment towards a 50 basis point hike in combination with the banking issues this week. So hawkish Fed comments from Powell right before a major banking news event with Silvergate Capital liquidating Silvergate Bank and the shuttering of Silicon Valley Bank were two major catalysts this week, with employment data showing a slight softening to relieve concerns the Fed may need to increase its pace of rate hikes back to a half a point. So up next, David Keller, this week's guest technician. Just a few quarters after you made the 2022 panic cycle call on our show, Russia invaded Ukraine and all hell broke loose in Europe. Then when we spoke with you just a couple months after the war began, this was in April of last year, so April of 2022, you believed that 
this was likely the Russia-Ukraine war was likely setting us up for World War III. And that this year, in 2023, as we were speaking today, is when the war would possibly begin to take on a more international turn. Are you still expecting things to move in that direction? Unfortunately, yes. What I've come to understand is that if you know a war is going to start, you move your money. So the computer is picking up the capital flows. And what we're looking at here going into April in particular, April is a very important turning point. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, the market did not like Powell's testimony before Congress this week, hinting that interest rates could be going much higher. What does this mean for the markets? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Dave Keller. He's chief market strategist at Stock Charts. And what's your take on what the charts are telling you now? It's so interesting. I mean, if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 and look at where we're at right now, as you implied, May of last year, we were right about at the same level. We were talking about, you know, breaking 4,000 to the downside, what that might mean and, and, and downside targets beyond that. It's amazing that with all of how, how much we've learned, I feel like, and, and how much has happened since then, we really directionally haven't gone anywhere. Now, having said that, it's been a bumpy ride for a lot of investors. Uh, certainly as, as, as themes have sort of come and gone. Um, I would say at the beginning of 2023, uh, it, it in a lot of ways was what I call a change of character. You had a lot of signs of distribution going into October of last year. The fourth quarter, you started to see signs of encouragement where you know areas of the market that had been underperforming, and in particular, some areas like uh, technology and uh, some growth areas started to improve. That really accelerated at the beginning of uh, of this year. So January was really, uh, and, and into February, sort of a growth-fueled uh, expansion and driven by, I would say, a renewed sense of optimism that the finish line of what the Fed has been doing was getting nearer and nearer. It's funny how this week, one interview from uh, Fed Chairman Powell immediately changes the complexion of the market as all of a sudden the finish line feels like it it, it at least went higher or, or pushed a little further down the road. And speaking of that, what we've seen, at least at the beginning of the year, I'd like to hear your comments on last year, energy was a strong performer, technology was not, healthcare, consumer staples, more of the defensive type things you would see if we were heading into recession. In January, that, that kind of flipped. The uh, consumer staples have been in a decline. You saw energy pulling back. You saw healthcare pulling back. And then all of a sudden, you saw this rally in technology. Do you think that's played out or is there more to come? 
Well, so the number of things changed right at, at the beginning of this year, and and you know we went from interest rates sort of pushing higher and higher through the course of you know really most of 2022. That actually started in the end of 2021. You saw rates going higher, ten year yield getting up to around four and a quarter in uh, in October of last year. From there, started to come off, and then January rates just kind of really came down. The ten year got down around three forty, just below there, if I remember right. Uh, and the dollar uh, certainly changed as well, right? The strong dollar through much of 2022, it, you know, the average week in 2022, I feel like was strong dollar and weaker everything else. And there are certain things that will sort of thrive in that kind of environment. And it's definitely not growth stocks. And the challenge is our benchmarks are very growth oriented. So when the mega cap sort of fang stocks and you know, things like semiconductors and others are struggling. It's tough for the benchmarks that we follow, the S&P, particularly the NASDAQ, to, you know, sort of materialize any sort of positive uh, momentum. Now, that changed quite a bit at the beginning of this year when the dollar went from being incredibly strong to all of a sudden rotating lower. And that weaker dollar uh, from the end of last year really gave space for uh, you know, growth stocks actually do particularly well and non-US stocks, right? You are you're looking at developed Europe, like European or Japanese banks, for example, having, you know, incredible runs to the upside. And that really uh, was only possible because the dollar started to weaken up a little bit. Now you're starting to see a bit of a mean reversion to what happened there. So you're seeing the dollar actually pop a little bit higher. You're seeing rates move back to the upside with the uh, 10-year-old currently just below 4% again. Uh, and so I, I think that when I'm thinking of what the the world looks like going forward, I think it's, uh, you know, the message we got this week is that higher rates are still a thing. And if higher rates are what we will be struggling with through much of 2023, it's just not an environment that growth stocks tend to do pretty well. So some of those groups that you mentioned, like uh, like energy, like industrials, materials, those are more the groups that tend to do better as opposed to like tech and consumer uh, sectors. And if we take a look at this, uh, I want to go to uh, yields here because we've got the 10-year back up to uh, 4% level. And Dave, we are seeing rates of return on short-term treasuries, and I'm talking about T-bills, over 5%. I haven't seen anything like this in almost two decades. It's fascinating. And just the, the 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 amount that you can get, the interest rate you can get on a CD. I mean, I can't I can't believe it's funny we're talking about CDs as a legitimate investment option, but you know it actually is happening again. For the longest time, rates are kind of artificially kept right at zero, and so you know we're we're not used to savings account actually yielding something and a money market account actually yielding above four percent, and that's sort of the environment that we're in right now. And, and if you think about what that means, it means. You know, for for a while, it made sense to go defensive in the equity space and go to something like utilities or consumer staples or like REITs, which tend to be a higher yielding, you know, higher income, higher dividend paying uh, part of the market. But if you're making that much on on treasury bonds, then why take the additional risk of going into into the equity markets as all at all? And I and I think that again is is part of the complexion of how the market is changing, where you're actually able to get meaningful yields from the fixed income markets in a way that we haven't seen in a little while. Yeah, I'm, uh, as we're speaking, uh, we're doing this interview on a Wednesday. We have one year treasury bills at five point three. We've got six month at over five and a quarter. My goodness, like I said, it, it's been at least two decades since we've seen anything like that. So, uh, so much for uh, Tina, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And again, it's it's so funny. A lot of those sort of market maxims that so many of us have have really learned to you know to to embrace over the last you know number of years. I, I started investing in two thousand. 
And so my experience has been, you know, for the most part, sort of lower rates. And I've not experienced a, you know, an, a, a, a consistent rising rate environment. I would say most, you know, investors, certainly younger investors and novice investors have never experienced anything like that. So I think so many of us have been, have learned in our time in the markets Bull markets mean growth stocks are leading, and it's probably the mega cap fang stocks. Now, all of a sudden, we're in an environment where you could have a bull market phase driven more by value over growth. You could have a uh, phase where the mega cap stocks aren't as attractive as small cap names. I look at the relative performance of small caps, which is you know a, a, a pretty impressive recently, and, and for a while had not been. So again, I think uh, for a lot of investors, it, it really help. It should help to focus on what's happening. Focus on, and for me, the charts, and, and think about where the opportunities are, as opposed to thinking of a playbook that may actually be obsolete at this point. I want to uh, turn our attention not just from interest rates, but also something that sort of kicked off a lot of inflation besides government spending, and that's the oil markets. Uh, we saw. Uh, peak in oil prices in early summer last year, and then we've been in this downtrend and probably for the last couple of months in kind of a sideways consolidation. What's your take on oil prices? Well, it's interesting. You mentioned energy earlier, Jim, and you know, certainly in you know in 2022, particularly the first half. I mean, what a what a fantastic sector that you know sort of in a lot of ways came out of nowhere. You had this all of a sudden resilience in the in the equity in the energy markets that we hadn't seen in quite some time. Uh, you saw the uh, the XLE doing particularly well. Uh, crude oil prices really pushed higher in the first half of that year. But then the second half of the year, things changed quite a bit, right? Crude oil prices came down pretty aggressively. Um, you got down into the 80s, the $70 dollar a barrel sort of range on uh, on WTI. Uh, and as a result, the energy sector uh, started to struggle quite a bit. For the last six months, oil prices have essentially been flat, right? They've sort of been chopping around. Crude oil bottomed out around $70 a barrel uh, at the end of last year, and, and really not much above there. We're still sort of in the 70s. And so in, until you really see oil prices improve from here, uh, I think it's 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 tough to really think of energy as a, as a decent bet timing-wise. Having said that, if you buy into sort of the crude oil goes higher down the road thesis, which I think is totally fair, uh, energy actually could be a really interesting play because it had been so strong and now is so, has been showing some short-term weakness. And what I found is sort of those long-term, you know, secular stories that are short-term in, you know, short-term weaker, uh, a lot of times can be really good opportunities to add a, and, and accumulate an additional position going forward. So for crude oil, I'd love to see it get above like $83, $85 a barrel, which would sort of get about get us out of the range we've been in the last three months. That starts to happen. I think you see the energy sector really start to improve, and, and that could be the timing uh, for that area of the market. Let's move on to another commodity. Dave, if you would have told me we would see the highest inflation in over four decades. We would have the outbreak of a war. We would see a falling dollar that gold would just basically go sideways and not do much of anything. I would have said no way, but that's what happened. So we, I, I know I was taught certainly, Jim, that gold is the safe haven, right? So if things are uncertain, if it's if it's inflation, right, that's sort of the security blanket for investors is go to gold. It's relatively stable, relatively inflation proof. You're going to sort of ride things out pretty well. And it just has not happened. I, I think a big part of that story, certainly in, in 2022, for, for much of that was a, was a strong dollar. So the dollar so strong, things like gold and, and, and other commodities at times really, uh, you know, struggled struggled to make any uh, any upside movements. Gold actually popped up pretty well from the fourth quarter into the beginning of 2023. Um, and so you saw gold prices go higher through the month of, uh, of January. February was a very different picture where all of a sudden you think started to rotate down. And, and even looking at gold stocks, right? Things like 
Newmont Mining or even ETFs like GDX or um, or uh, or any of those, uh, you you saw a real improvement there in January that reversed quite a bit in February. I kind of like the setup for gold right here, um, given the fact that uh, again inflation has been such an issue. But if you if you think that there is a finish line to an inflation, if you think that story is sort of wrapping up at some point in 2023, that's when you start to see gold really uh, really improve. It's pulled back quite a bit from the highs in uh, in January. I actually like the setup for gold and some of the gold stocks have been underperforming. I think it could be a really good opportunity to buy on short-term weakness and ride the next leg higher. I want to talk about two narratives that we're seeing coming out of Wall Street. The last year when we had two quarters of negative GDP with inventory drawdowns at the beginning of the year, it was a hard landing. And then as things sort of improved, uh, not as bad as we thought, we went to a soft landing. And then we get some strong employment numbers, some retail sales numbers. Then we went to no landing. So that's one narrative. Right now, <laughs> no landing. The second one was Wall Street looking for a Fed pivot. Well, they're going to pivot. They're going to pivot, you know, by mid-year. And yesterday we got a testimony. Doesn't sound like a pivot coming from the Fed. So it looks like higher interest rates are on the way. And and what's so interesting, Jim, is if you listen to the language, I, I, I would say a couple of things on this. If you listen to the language that we've heard, not just from Powell, but from other Fed governors, I would I would probably generally describe it as as fairly hawkish. I my interpretation, and again, trying to think of the of the psychology, the behavior of the of the markets and of investors, you're hearing language, and I I feel like what they are seeing is the market is incredibly resilient, and we're actually trying to slow things down. So we need to make sure that we tap the brakes and and let people recognize that we're not done yet. And, you know, it's still very data dependent. They've mentioned that a number of times, which means things could last, you know, could be longer and, and rates could go higher than they're probably expected. Even with that narrative that we've seen, I think the markets have still gone up and, and particularly growth areas in the market. Look at the NASDAQ and how it's, it's run so much to the upside so far in 2023. Um, so for me, there's that disconnect between what I think the Fed has been saying, what they've been implying, and certainly the trajectory of what of what we're seeing here. The market has been pricing in an incredibly soft landing, and to your point, almost like a no landing. Like this is just going to we're kind of back to a normal quote unquote bull market phase. And I think what we saw this week is the market actually, in some ways, sort of waking up and recognizing, okay. This Fed cycle is not, you know, there's no defined end to it. And there, there's been a lot of optimism that has been priced in. It feels like the market's been leaning out a little too far in front of the skis. And, and that usually happens in this sort of environment. There's a, a sense of optimism baked in. And then there's a wake-up call. And the market comes back a little bit. The question, I think, is more going to be the sustainability of some sort of uh, drawdown here. And I, you know, generally speaking, I think the uh, the lows from October of last year probably end up being the lows for for the cycle, which means rotating lower, could present a good long long term opportunity as long as as an investor you have a, a runway that's uh, further enough away from today. Dave, has it struck you given what happened to last year? I mean, I'm thinking of the sixty forty portfolios. The S and P was down twenty percent. Bonds were down over twenty percent. The Nasdaq down over thirty percent. And yet, I don't think we've seen that capitulation, that waterfall decline of passive index investors just throwing in the talent that I've had it, that's enough. That hasn't happened. 
No, and I would say that's absolutely right, right? We didn't have sort of that final big drop where it felt like everything was washed out. One one of my mentors, Walter Diemer, who ran the technical research department at Putnam Investments in Boston in the 1970s, he would often tell me about the 1974 low. And, you know, things got so negative that people could not imagine buying stocks. And that was when the bottom actually occurred, right? I, we've arguably certainly not seen that for this uh, for this cycle, uh, and that could be could be a, a cause for a concern. And that could mean that we may or just may just be kicking the can down the road a little bit. The the market certainly seems to be thinking that this Fed cycle that we're in is sort of done, and then the grand bull market continues. There's no guarantee for that, right? And there could be plenty of uh, of choppiness going forward, and, and we could be seeing, uh, you know, a, a short term rally over the course of the, the the next six months that ends up setting up for a painful 2024. Uh, those are all open questions, and and for me, again, it, it's a reminder to focus on what the markets are telling us. And and for me, the strength off of the October low, particularly the consistent rally that we've seen, not just in the growth areas of the market, but in other places like industrials, in semiconductors, uh, in, in groups like that, you know, caused me to be fairly confident that we're in a, in a decent place. But the market rolls over. We break levels of support instead of holding those. I think the picture can change very, very quickly. And we've seen a little mini version of that this week for sure. So, Dave, given as we close here, what would you be doing as an investor, given what the charts are telling you? I think right now it's certainly an uncertain period. There are times when I feel like this challenge of analyzing the markets is more straightforward. 2021 seemed like a very straightforward bullish phase. You saw a lot of encouraging signs, a lot of strong breadth and sentiment conditions. 2022, obviously very different, right? Clearly negative, a lot of distribution patterns and all that. 2023 so far is 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 super is, is is certainly feeling way more volatile than we've than we've seen uh previously and also a lot of uh, of uncertainty certainly with the fed and 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 I think we're you know one headline away from a big move higher or lower on any given day so having said that it reminds me to sort of take a step back and think about the bigger picture the reality is despite what we're hearing from the fed in a pre-election year which is what we're in uh this year the first 6 months actually tend to be pretty good so the rally from October of last year, really lasting into May, June of 2023, would be sort of the classic presidential cycle playbook. And so far, even with the short-term movements, we're following that pretty well. So for me, I'm, I'm sort of in a general risk on uh, um, uh, uh, positioning and following the markets higher. But I, I would say what I learned from, from flying airplanes is the time when you plan for emergencies, it's not when the engine cuts out, when you start to figure out what to do. You do it when everything is good. And, and when the plane is flying well and you're flying straight level, that's when you think of your exit strategies. It's a really good time to make sure that your stops, your risk assessment in your portfolio is, is pretty updated. So for any position I have on right now, I have a clear line in the sand, a level at which I agree to revisit, if not close out the position entirely. And I think that's a, a good way to approach this sort of market. As we close, Dave, tell our listeners about stock charts. I, I love one of my favorite parts of your website is your market summary page. I can go take a look at major indexes, major sectors, international markets, commodities, cryptos, international, everything you can think of all on one page. Uh, thanks so much, Jim. And, and yeah, stockcharts.com, the goal is to provide three pillars for the modern investor, um, you know, strong tools to help you understand what's happening in the market and really appreciate the signals that the markets provide back to you, right? What's working and what isn't. It's expert commentary from, you know, John Murphy and Martin Pring, myself and others sort of 
you know, guiding you on what we've seen and what we've experienced and it's education. I think that's a, a, a big, there's a, a great opportunity for investors in that trading is as inexpensive as it's ever been. The access to information that the individual investors and, and advisors have now is unprecedented. But there's also a big gap, I feel like, between the tools we all have and the education that allows us to make good decisions and not just take action. And so I hope we're, we're able to sort of provide uh, provide those uh, those three things. I would tell you my favorite part right now is we have a, a page called the Dynamic Yield Curve, which actually shows you going back for decades how the market has evolved looking at the S&P over time and actually looking at the shape of the yield curve. And if you think about the inverted yield curve now, what it means for recessionary periods and for bear market phases, that one page can really help you understand that relationship uh, in, a, in, a, in greater detail. All right. Well, listen, Dave, it was great speaking with you and hope to talk to you once again. Take care, my friend. It's always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks so much. Here's the simple reality. Given the promises we've made to pensioners, our economies have no choice but to grow. Otherwise, we get into the cycle I just described where the pensions take up a bigger and bigger piece of GDP and ultimately your economy implodes. It's just not not feasible. So we, we have to grow to pay our pension promises. Now, there's two ways an economy grows. The first is by adding workers. The second is by boosting the productivity of your workers. The option of adding workers basically no longer is one for pretty much every major economy out there. Uh, it's not an, an option for China. It's not an option in most European countries. Even in the US, you might say, oh, well, we can bring in a lot of immigrants from Mexico. But even that doesn't, the maths no, no longer really add up. If you look at Mexico, in 1975, Mexican women were having six children per, per women. Uh, today, they're having less than two. So if you can't grow your economy by adding workers... The only thing you can do is grow your economy by boosting the productivity of your workers. And, you know, I think obviously robotics, automation, machinery is the obvious way you're going to boost the productivity of your workers. It's the only way out of our current predicament. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. All heard a lot over the last couple of years about the green transition, the danger of climate change. But are we proceeding on the right path? Will renewables solve the problem? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Professor Simon Michaud. He's from the Geological Survey of Finland. And Professor, I want to start. You've been doing a study in the current industrial system as we know it today, is dependent on fossil fuels. And especially, you know, with fossil fuels, we have something called machines. You know, without fossil fuels, we wouldn't have these machines. But you're saying if we want to make this transition, if it's done properly and organized, it would take 20 years. But that doesn't seem the way we're going right now. Explain. Okay. So what I, my work is to show the policymakers, Europe in particular, but in fact all over the world, that their plans to phase out fossil fuels, they call the green transition, are not possible in their current form. They are untethered to reality, that they haven't done the basic math. This is not a question of whether we should 
phase out fossil fuels or not. Whether it's climate change reasons or whether you're talking about resource depletion like peak oil, oil in particular is becoming unreliable. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what oil actually does for us, what gas does for us, what coal does for us. And it's so ubiquitous that our policymakers just don't see it. They just don't see it. Or I haven't seen it until now. And the numbers I've put together is to actually sort of what would it take to replace the existing system around us now? I use 2018 as the year of the most current data that I could put together for the study. And what I showed was, first of all, what does fossil fuel do for us? And then as to substitute that with something not fossil fuels, the task is enormous, much, much larger than we thought. And it also became apparent is there's many aspects of phasing out fossil fuels that just haven't even been thought through. And the work I did was actually what I thought was pretty conservative. It doesn't actually include everything. And it's for the year 2018, which you know, by 2050, we're going to be generating four times the electricity, or so the IEA would tell us. So yes, and this is to show that if we were to go down this route, even if we had the minerals in the ground, which we don't, we're looking at many, many, many decades of work ahead of us if we were to do that. Now, we don't have the time, we don't have the money or the industrial capacity to actually produce all this stuff, in mostly in China, but elsewhere as well. The capacity is just not there. And it turns out we don't have the minerals either. So the whole thing has to be rethought from the ground up. And that's the basic message. You know, you talk about something, and I don't think people realize this. Coal is used by the industry to generate high temperature heat for manufacturing and smelting. Current renewable systems are unable to deliver such high temperatures and the quantities needed for much of the existing manufacturing requirements. So at this time, the phase out of fossil fuels, this is going to impact manufacturing. How do you make these big things? I even think of automobile manufacturers. And at the same time, there's another statistic I'd love to hear you comment because I'm a big believer in peak oil. 81% of existing oil fields are in decline 5 to 7% a year in depletion. As you point out, many of these oil fields were discovered in the 60s, 70s. If you take a look at last year, it was probably the lowest discovery rate that we've seen. But here's the one I want to ask you. Peak oil could be in our past. We won't know until November 23rd or 2023. What happens in November 2023? Right. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. Okay, coal is where we do all manufacturing. For example, to make a solar panel, we're going to get a silicon wafer. We've got to heat the silicon, metallurgical grade silicon, up to 2,200 degrees Celsius. At the moment, this is only done in China, and they use coking coal to do it. So every single solar panel made needs coal to get there. If you were to knock out coal, you've got to first convince the Chinese to do that. And you know that's a problem in its own right. You could substitute, for example, using biofuels or hydrogen in some circumstances, or electric arc furnace in some applications. So all of those things work in a very small scale, but the massive amounts of coal that we are using to do this stuff, like if you had to replace it with biofuel, that action, the planet is not able to producing enough biomass to substitute for that, right? And so this is the thing. If we take coal out of the system at the moment, most of our manufacturing would go with it, including the ability to make the next system, whatever that is. And we just haven't done the math. So that's problem number one. So peak oil, it turns out uh, I was reading about peak oil 20 years ago, and back in the day, it was actually much simpler. So we've actually got Matthew Simmons, who I admired greatly, as listening to one of his podcasts, and he was saying the complexity of the system, the best way to see peak oil, if you can call it, 
is if you're in the rear vision mirror, if you have like a peak of, say, let's say 2018, you have to wait five years in case someone comes up with a new deposit. Someone pulls a rabbit out of the hat. He said five years and then you can call it. So if peak oil was November 2018, we should wait until November 23. And what that means is in that time, all the conventional oil fields that sit under everything else are declining. That was a study done by HSBC, the bank, in 2016 on numbers from 2015. So those numbers are now, what's that, eight years old. And so the decline rate might be even faster now. So what are we saying there? Right. So when, when we actually sort of pass the five-year mark, pass the peak, then we can sort of say, guys, that probably was peak oil. However, it's become more complicated. Art Berman from Labyrinth Consulting Services have put together a very nice piece of work to show that total liquids is on its way to coming back and almost beating that record in 2018. But total liquids includes biofuels. It also includes gasoline made from gas. 48% of the gasoline coming out of the United States is now made from gas. So what we are doing is we are supplanting the oil industry with the gas industry. And this is dumb because, well, it's not very bright, because the energy efficiency of doing so, oil is much more calorifically dense than gas, right? So we're building in an efficiency, a structural inefficiency into the system. What it means, though, it looks like oil is declining, and it is declining steadily since November 2018, but that's crude oil. So the gas thing to make gasoline doesn't help with diesel and doesn't help with bunker fuel. So what I'm saying is what we call peak oil has evolved. It's become more complicated and there's more things involved in it. Just as much trouble, if you remember the old Hirsch report, but you know, Bob Hirsch, he was saying that once we actually found the actual solution to replace oil, it will take us 20 years to implement it, right? And really, ideally, we should have done this 20 years ago. We didn't. So the fact is that it is peak oil in 2018, or is it next year or whatever? It's around now. So we're in just as much trouble. And what does that mean for everything? Yeah, I read a late Matt Simmons was a friend of mine. And I remember speaking with Matt and his research papers when he came out with Twilight in the Desert. And one of the things that we've seen that's always struck me is Saudi oil reserves at 260 billion barrels are the same today as they were in 1988. Yet they produced all this oil, but their reserves never go down. And I don't think they're capable of hitting the numbers that they say they can, that they can produce 12 or 13 million barrels. I don't believe it. I've never seen it. So in a uh, report I released in 2019 called Oil from a CRM Perspective, it's on my website. It's on the GDK server as well. I actually made the, it was like a tour of duty for everything oil. And it was the first government-backed report that actually mentioned the words peak oil in some time. And probably since Bob Hirsch's work, actually, that that's been publicly released. So I kept picked up on a pattern that in 2005, we saw a blowout in the metal prices. And it was January 2005, and it blew everything out. And the mining industry in Australia was, what's going on here? We don't know. So what was January 2005? Well, that also happened to be when oil production plateaued. So when you actually unpack that and you look at, well, the Saudi Arabians were the swing producers at the time. Okay. So what I found when I did a bit of digging, their rig count had gone through the roof. They had brought on more and more rigs, drilling oil both onshore and offshore, something like 146% increase in rig count. But in that window, they actually contracted 4.6% in oil production. So in other words, demand kept going up. The Saudis were told, we need you to increase oil production. They couldn't. 
the Saudis couldn't. They hadn't. And so now since then, they've been sweating their deposit and they've been pressurizing their deposits with water and extracting things at a faster rate. And it means they're not getting the most out of their reserves, but it does mean they can increase production artificially. So I think that blowout started in the oil industry because the Saudis couldn't raise oil production for a short period of time. That put the system under such strain. Three years later, it caused the global financial crisis. And I used the oil price as a temporal marketer for the start of that. Now we fixed it with quantitative easing and later horizontal drilling, which brought oil back in the tight oil sector. So oil, money, global financial crisis, the industrial system, they're all linked. And this all happened 18 years ago now. So it's now. These conversations are not theoretical anymore. You know, you bring up something I just read, and I'd I'd like to get your views whether these are accurate or not. Non-OPEC oil production peaked in 2005, 2006, and I just read that OPEC oil production peaked in 2016. It's down about 4 million barrels from where it was then. And the concept that also hits me here in something you bring up is energy return on investment, a concept that Professor Charles Hall raised. Charlie Hall. Yeah. So they're getting less oil and it's costing more to get what it is, whether they're going offshore or whatever they're doing. And if you take a look at applying that concept to renewables, the renewables don't stack up in terms of the same return on energy produced to make that. So you have to be careful with the EROI ratio. It's a great idea. I love Charlie's work. He has really contributed something extraordinary, useful, but there's no agreement on what goes into the calculation of the energy return and energy invested ratio. I would like to see someone reinvent it from the ground up and they would use some extra terms in the fundamentals of it. But what you conceptually said is correct. Now, the problem is how do you make sure that you're comparing apples with apples? Solar panels, well, you know, how much energy do they put out versus how much energy did put in? Like, did you actually make the solar panel? Did you install it? You know, what about the infrastructure around it? Are you including things like life cycle analysis? Then how do you manage intermittent supply if you've got a big system, right, and you're no longer using fossil fuels to balance that system? It has to be self-sufficient. Now you're talking about a battery bank or some other form of power storage. If you include that, it goes negative very quickly. So then you've got to go, well, if we're going to conclude the construction of materials, then you've got to go back to the oil system and say, well, how do we get the oil? And so the refiners, you include the construction of the refineries. What about the construction of the wellhead that's actually out to sea? And then did you include um, exploration? It becomes very complicated and messy. And so I use the energy return and energy invested as a blunt tool for comparison. But until we can actually sort of get something more sophisticated to do direct comparisons, like I, I would like to see Charlie come back and collaborate with others to actually make a new tool. But yes, in conceptual terms, the effort you put into renewables compared to what you get out is so much less than fossil fuels at the moment. And not only that, is what you get out is far less flexible. Each energy system has its purpose, and renewables are far less useful in what they can do and what they can give us compared to the good old oil or coal or gas. And in fact, if we lose gas, gas is how we're balancing the power grid at the moment. Power and supply have to balance to a millionth of a second. And power grids trade power between each other externally. So if we lose the gas industry, you know, know, for whatever, then we actually can't balance our power grid anymore in the conventional sense. And this is the challenge renewables have not thought through yet. So 
the energy sector is in deeper shit than usual is a summary of where we're at. You know, I want to relate a story in terms of where we want to go. A friend of mine came to visit. He was heading back, driving up north. He was caught in freeways in California because of the snow. And one of the reasons the freeway jams were as bad as they were is they had these Teslas that their batteries ran down. The engineers figure out Tesla in terms of mileage. They don't figure it out of a Tesla caught in a traffic jam for two hours, burning down its battery. And so they had to get these tow trucks onto the freeway to get these Teslas out. Because you talk about the entire renewable build-out requires 36,000 terawatt hours to operate, meaning 586,000 new non-fossil fuel power stations of average size. The current fleet of power stations is only 46,000, meaning it will take 10 times the current number of power stations yet to be built. Have they thought this through? Nope. No, they haven't. That's the simple answer. So the numbers have gone up. Every time I put some something out there, someone gives me a flaming on Twitter. <laughs> and, so, and someone pointed that I had not included the hydrogen industry in its current form, which is about 73 million tons of hydrogen. Half of that is to refine petroleum products. So take out the petroleum section, you've got about 35 million tons left. So that had to be included into the calculations. And so now the new number is 37,289 terawatt hours. And now we need 607,000 new power stations. Right. And why so many? So a coal-fired power station has availability of 92%. That is 92% of the time is producing power, and the rest of the time is down for maintenance. That's about what nuclear is too. Pretty good. So when I did some stats from the Global Energy Observatory, I worked out what did all the power systems actually do, not what they promised, and not what they theoretically might do, but what do they actually do? And so I found that wind was producing power 24.9% of the calendar year in 2018. Mm. Get this, solar was at 11.4%. They were producing power, this is on average for the average system, across in the global context, everything reported, 11.4% of the time. Right, so to replace a single coal-fired power station, because you know, you'll have a power station operating most of the time, but if you replace it with solar panels, you have to understand that you're vulnerable to the weather and the day-night cycle, And so you've got assets standing idle most of the time, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. So if you wanted to deliver a 1,000 terawatt hours of power to your power grid per year, you could either use 142 average coal-fired power stations or 30,266 average solar panel arrays of average size. Mm. So we're talking about a massive telescoping there. Now, to build a coal-fired power station is a fairly big asset. It's a fairly large asset, and solar panels tend to be, uh, systems tend to be smaller. But the permitting involved, the materials involved are much more exotic. The land it takes up is much more. The infrastructure is much, much more. It's just like an entirely different system. And our policymakers, when I first came to Europe, and this is what really pissed me off, I came to Europe in out of a mining crash in Australia, and lots of good people were going to the wall. You know, companies were going down. There just wasn't the capital to keep them going. So I get to Europe. And there's a lot of arm waving and a lot of talk in these meetings. And they're throwing around numbers in the billions for research. I'd never seen so much money. But there was no macro scale industrial reform plan to phase out fossil fuels, not to the point where we need infrastructure of these solar panels, uh, these wind turbines, this infrastructure. We're going to have a phase out of 
gas and coal systems right across Europe. None of that existed. There were no numbers. There wasn't even the numbers of how many cars there were in the global transport fleet. So if you don't know that, how do you know how many batteries you need? And so they were running on ideology and the fact that fossil fuels was running things in the background and everything was fine. And it was really quite disheartening. And so I went away and thought about it. How do I communicate what I'm seeing and in a form that it can't be ignored? So the answer was get to the point where you can make some recommendations of how many wind turbines and solar panels and EVs you will need. And the other thing that we've seen with EVs, I have a friend that lives up in Calgary, and he says his Tesla during the winter doesn't get more than 35 to 40 miles. In cold weather, they don't work that well. So what that means is we're still learning to use this technology, and there's a lot of things that we've got to do to work out what to do. So we've got to scale back our assumptions, and we've got to scale back our planned industrial actions, what we think we're going to do. And so there's a learning curve in front of us. Have you explained or is, what has been the reaction as you've revealed these statistics on what's needed, what we have, and what's going to be needed to make this transition? Because one of the things that really struck me is renewables are heavily required metals. And you talk about copper, serious shortfall, nickel, shortfall, lithium, shortfall, cobalt, shortfall, graphite, shortfall, vanadium, huge shortfall. So how are we going to make this transition when we basically right now don't have the metals to do it? Right. So what that means is our planned transition is not going to happen. As I like to say when I put the graph up, it says, this is a crap plan. You guys got to make a better one. You know, it is true. So you haven't done the numbers, right? And we just haven't have the availability. So we can't bring on more commodities very easily, right? Certainly not in the scale that we need. So it's not going to happen. We can't expand the industrial capacity to smelt and the metals you know, in the Chinese capacity system or manufacture the stuff, even if we had the supply, raw material supply to do so. So we can't expand our technology. We can't expand the commodities very easily. What the smart money is, is the one thing that can change very easily is us. And so what I see happening is we're going to move into an era of scarcity where it will be like a fairly sharp contraction on the functioning of the transport grid. And that's going to have two pressures. First of all, petroleum products are going to become inelastic and expensive and unreliable. And then replacement systems like hydrogen fuel cells and electric vehicles won't be as common as we would like, and they'll be unavailable on the market. Remembering while this is happening is also when we're going to be dealing with a currency reset, you know, saturation of debt and the consequences. I believe we are seeing the very early stages of hyperinflation, but that's another discussion around this. So I can see a situation where we're going to be put in a very difficult situation and humanity will be required to grow up, step up and deal with a very difficult situation. And there's a whole series of problem solving around that. So we will contract our footprint, not because we choose to, but because our ability to operate will contract. I don't think politicians really see this because I take my own state of California. We're shutting down. We shut down one nuclear power plant. The other one will be shut down in 2030. We're shutting down coal plants. Now they want to get rid of natural gas. By 2035, you can't have a uh, gasoline engine car sold in California. So that means you're going to have to have EVs. All these mandates that these politicians are issuing have not completely been thought through. I'll take it further, actually. I'll take it further. So not only have they not been short thought through, but if you go up to orbit and you look down on the human system, and you say, well, hang on, because 
not only that they're not thought through, but it's like they never intended to do it. They keep putting it off. And so humanity collectively has been walked to the edge of the pier. It's fine. It's fine. You know, everything's under control. Stay at your posts. Use your credit card. It's all good. And some of us are now starting to ask the hard questions around, well, who's going to do this? If you're going to knock out fossil fuel power plays, like if you're going to shut stuff down in California, okay, what are you replacing it with? And no, seriously, what are you replacing it with? And you ask them these questions. The answer is, well, we haven't planned anything. That's a worry because you can't just shut them down and start them up again. This, these, these sorts of things take planning. And when I presented this work last year to 91 different organizations all over the world, right, they were, first they're all shocked. They're unprepared for what they saw. No one was able to refute what I was presenting because I was actually using their own data. And so all the trouble and the pushback has actually happened on Twitter. No one does it to my face. So, and the third thing they ask is, well, what do we do? Because they themselves hadn't actually even, you know, like I said, hadn't actually sort of done the planning. But Finland, for example, is committed to be carbon neutral by 2035 and that all vehicles sold will be electric. And so they make these statements, these all-encompassing blanket statements without really thinking through what that means. And so I think they're going to say that the law of unintended consequences, at the very least, is, oh, we meant well, but all of a sudden certain capability is just not available in the market anymore. And a lot of them were policy decisions, and a lot of them were decisions they didn't make to keep things going. They didn't do maintenance. They didn't keep things operating. They didn't understand what the gas industry really does for society or what coal does for society. But what are the consequences of starting a trade war with the one nation that makes everything and we are absolutely dependent upon? We should have developed our own capability first if we were going to go down that path, but we didn't. So the consequences of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, well, we've got away with it so far, but there'll come a point when the consequences of our decisions will come home to roost. And how long do you think it is before we get to, as you talked about, peak oil 23 in November, that would be that five-year window period of time, because we're starting to see, and here's something also I want to add to that, the problem when we get to this point Printing money by the government is not going to solve this. You actually have to have raw materials. You have to have a system or a thought process that leads you through this transition. Just printing a whole bunch of money in debt like we're doing now. And I agree with you on the hyperinflation and the currency crisis, because I put it in perspective in the US, it took 43 presidents in 250 years to accumulate nine and a half trillion of debt. We just did that in three years. Yes, I know. I mean, it's just absolutely insane what's going on here. What do you think, as you look at this system, what do you think is a viable transition? I agree with you. We're going to have to cut back on what we do because we just simply won't have the energy or materials to go on the way we are right now. So the way I see it is in Australia, when when you get like a cyclone or you would call it a hurricane, hit like a, a region of the coast. Everything locks down. There's a flood, storms, trees are ripped up. You've got a disaster on your hands. The local society stops what it's doing, puts aside its normal method of operation, and they all pull together to make sure that society's needs are at least attempted to be looked at, like they become the priority now. And our thinking is very different. I can see once we get to these points where the way it will work is systems will just check out. They'll just fragment or stop working. We might get a bit of warning, maybe not. And so as they do, then 
it'll be, you know, what, what did James Cutler call it? The, the long emergency. It'll be one damn thing after another. And we're already trying to like hold the whole system together with chewing gum and positive thinking. In that environment, some people will understand that the system is not necessarily in a short-term slump. It's actually fragmenting. So in that environment where we're trying to do the best we can in an emergency context, we've got to understand that really, actually, this is the new normal. And within that environment, we've got to develop a new method of operation. And we will see human innovation, but also some flamboyantly stupid behavior as well. And we're all just going to have to problem on, solve on the fly. And it's going to be, the word disgraceful comes to mind, but it's a little messy. Probably it's going to be very messy. And we're going to be shocked that some certain systems just break down. And little things that we hadn't even considered will, will all of a sudden have big consequences. And in that environment, we'll have to learn to make do and almost certainly be on a much, much smaller scale than what, what's, what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I think this transition, and I think in the next couple of years, it, it's going to come more to the forefront. We're seeing it in my own state. We're having more power outs. They're predicting more power outs this summer. And at first, they seem like inconveniences. But when they happen on a repetitive basis, and we see them occurring not just in California, New York, and other places, you know, hopefully this will get the attention of some people in Washington or in Brussels. So I also think that the people who will step up to lead this, so like, like who's going to do it? And so I went away and thought about this. From a biological point of view, the size and complexity of an organism is dictated by the amount of energy that goes into it. And this is just a very a bi- biological system. Less energy, the organism has to shrink and it has to become simpler. Right. So if we're moving into a low energy world, then the idea of a nation state government that has evolved in the current energy system will most certainly have to decentralize, not break up, right? But the authority will transfer from the federal government to someone else. Now, in Australia, for example, who might do the useful work in an emergency? So what does the federal government actually own and what does it do? What does the state government own and what does it do? And then you get down to the city council or the province council or the shire council. So the city council, shire council, province, that sort of area, they're the ones that own the schools, the hospitals, the waste transfer stations. The power plants will be, and infrastructure feeding those power plants will be owned by the shire council. The power plant might be owned by a corporation or something, but It's the Shire Council level, the city council level that actually now has their hands on the assets that we need. And so I can see the authority being decentralized. And this is an energetic requirement, not just an opinion, where we have a nation state government, like a federal government, but their role reduces and will be reduced to maybe information sharing. Or this is a code of laws that that will develop something. And so at the moment, the federal government likes to tell us what to do. But it won't go to the state level. It'll go to the city council level, right? That's what I'm saying is we will decentralize as a matter of necessity. Currently, the World Economic Forum is putting this plan out where they want a global government. That is not going to work. Even if we wanted it to, it will not work because the challenges in each area will be so different that being administered from a central point will not work or certainly won't work for the benefit of the people, right? So we're going to evolve in a way that we haven't really prepared for. Your local city council will now have the authority to run society now, and everyone else is in support of that. Not that we break up as a nation state, but we just change how we do things within that nation state. You know, I agree with you because, for example, here in California, we have wind, we have sun. So 
even some of the renewables like solar and wind can work here. That doesn't go well in New York and Buffalo, Fargo, North Dakota, where they have eight feet of snow. So they might have to have a different type of system that is going to work for them. And that's only going to be determined, as you say, at the local level. It can't be somebody in Washington saying, this is the system for us all and just make it work. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So we're also going into it. If there's not enough to go around, right, we also have to agree that no one's got enough now. And we either agree to share the resources and the stuff in some form, or we turn on each other. Now, traditionally, historically, we've turned on each other. But we've now got the choice, because if we understand what's really going on and why, do we agree to work with each other, understanding that now none of us have what we need, and we've all got to evolve quickly? Or will we sort of devolve into, I want that, I will take it? And even if we do evolve into that world where, you know, organizations try and take things from each other, it will very, very quickly become apparent that if we don't make a new system to make new stuff, then it all grinds to a halt. And so the idea of actually, you know, the predatory relationships between tribes, for example, is a very, very short-lived window because everyone will suddenly realize that no one's making anything at all. And they either have to cooperate and collaborate or they go without permanently. And so we're seeing an evolution that's unprecedented. At the very center of all of it is a social contract which will change. And I think the human species will evolve. Individuals will have to become stronger, less technology-reliant. We're going to have to evolve at a, at a community's level, a group perception. We've got to become more aware, whereas at the moment we're very isolated in our actions from the consequences both before us and after us in that value chain. So it's all changing. And the architecture of our industrial systems and our food production systems all will have to change with it. You know, it's amazing. I wonder if this happens, we're going to see migration as we're seeing in the United States. I live in a state where we've lost over 354 major corporations. We've lost a couple house seats because of population leaving the state. And you have areas where things seem to be functioning better. And then you have states like California where they're not. And so I wonder if you're going to see a migration. So I can see a lot of the choices about where people live and at the moment are coming down to how things are being administered at like a state level and choices are being made like it's still, you know, 1970, like the, the levels of abundance and the money that's in society at the moment to actually do things. And I can see choices being made at, like, at an ideological level. We're still not making choices based on what resources we have available because our economics has been decoupled from resource reality for all this time. I do think once we get to a new energy system, whatever that is, that energy system will dictate us to operate. We will have to operate on a very different society form. So we'll see adjustment and a moving around of people. There's the current city, for example, a city like New York has evolved into its current form with the understanding that it had plenty of energy and manufactured goods and you know, electricity and everything they actually need flowing into the city from very far away. So if we're not going to do that anymore, then that city will have to change its profile. It'll have to be, first of all, become more self-sufficient, and you'll probably see a lot of people relocating out into other areas. So as you see this evolving, to me, I think this next decade is going to be very turbulent. We've got the currency issue. You know, we're already seeing petrodollars turn to petro yuan. We're seeing resource scarcity. We're seeing higher energy cost. And as you say, by November this year, we can look back and retrospect, did we hit peak oil? 
the question I have, how long is it going to take and how many times are these politicians going to be needed to hit over the head before they wake up and start doing? Because my own state, we're proceeding like wind and solar is going to work. There's going to be plenty of materials. It's going to be efficient. And it's not. It's not working. But they're still proceeding as it is. So statement one, politicians are followers, not leaders. They'll do what is popular to get them elected. And a lot of these topics are actually deeply unpopular. So which is why politicians seem to be allergic to actually looking at any of these issues. Statement two, this is really a question, who are our politicians really working for? Are they really representing the people who elected them? Or are they operating to some other interest group? Because, you know, the, the influence of lobbying in the United States in particular, but it's actually all over the world, lobbying of politicians and this perception of unbelievable corruption, where the average voter, the person on the ground, is the last people being looked at, and they're being hung out to dry. And it, so when things get difficult and the average person understands in mass these issues and what's behind these issues, if those politicians don't change their tune, quick smart, I can see them being removed and replaced by people who do understand. And so what will that look like? I have no idea. I would suggest it would be messy, though. You have to remember, any given paradigm will fight for its own survival. So the existing system, the established system, will do everything it can to prevent its removal. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I want to end on something. I used to interview Bob Hirsch back in the OO decade. And I remember his paper saying that with peak oil, the best thing that we could do is 20 years before it happens to begin a transition. And that would allow us to sort of make this transition. The next best would be 10 years and the worst would be to not recognize it and do nothing. And I think that's where we're at right now. We, we aren't recognizing this. That's a fair statement. It's been recognized unofficially. The number of nation states, here's a good one for you. How many times have we gone to war in areas where there happens to be oil, right? Well, how many times have we have, has the West applied sanctions against a country that happens to have large oil reserves? Venezuela, Iran, Russia, they're all, they're all oil producing and gas. Wars have been fought in Iraq, you know, Libya. When you actually you, you put the column up, so all of these nation states, I think all of those wars for the last thirty nine years have been about an economic act. Have been about who controls the oil industry as we approach peak oil. Because both the aggressors and the recipients of that aggression have oil reserves, quite a lot. So, and then a lot of these nations, like you know, Germany, British Isles, the Saudis. They're all peak oil literate. There are reports out there that were leaked that show that these nations actually understood what peak oil meant. And this is all in the last 20 years. But then they made those reports confidential. And they got leaked anyway, right? And so it is known. It is absolutely known. So there is a plan on the ground, but we haven't been informed what it is. That's disturbing. Well, listen, Professor, as we close, tell our listeners about your website and the things that they can find there. Because the thing I like is you deal in reality, you deal in facts, which is sorely missing in this whole transition debate. So this was actually what I was trying to achieve. The website is all one word, lowercase, simonmichaud.com. And on that website, I've tried to put everything I've done. And what I saw was a general lack of numbers. And there was this tendency to use ideology to do problem solving. And the people making the decisions were making those decisions based on information that didn't exist. It was very poor. 
And so I've tried to put the actual numbers together to prove a point. And now I'm actually starting to put together some ideas of what we might do going forward. And so my work is to be seen as a stepping stone or a gateway between the world of the last couple of hundred years and the world that's coming in now. And the purpose of the work is to show these are the problems that we have to work with and how do we meet those problems. I'm inherently an optimist with the understanding that society is about to go through the toughest time in recorded history. Generation that will have to do this will have to be stronger than the generation that fought World War II. So the challenges in front of us are unprecedented. And society at the moment, you could argue that we're the most unprepared emotionally, but we will rise to the occasion. The people who will step forward to lead us, to actually lead us through this, are probably not our currently elected officials. There'll be other people. Who they are? No idea. We'll see when we get there. But once we actually get through this, right, and we actually meet these problems, society on the other side will have to be reality-based, whereas at the moment we're illusion-based. And that has to be a step forward. So while we're about to go through a very difficult period, the prize is a genuinely reality-based, more self-aware and stronger society on the other side of this transition. And that's how I would talk to people. Well, I like that optimistic comment. No. For our listeners, I just want to give out your website and the way it's spelled. It's Simon, S-I-M-O-N, Michaud, M-I-C-H-A-U-X, all one word, simonmichaud.com. And we've been speaking with Professor Simon. And I want to thank you for joining us. And thank goodness, Simon, there are people like you out there that are raising these issues in the facts to alert people. Thank you. There's actually quite a few of us. I'm not alone. Yeah, I know. We've had quite a few of them on this. One of the gentlemen we have on the show is Robert Bryce, and he recommended you very highly. Yeah, there's quite a few people that are actually pretty good. And so it is happening. The transition is happening. Well, we'll end on that optimistic note. Thank you so much for being generous of your time, and I hope to talk to you again. Joining us on our Smart Macro segment, as always, is our CIO of Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. So, Chris, late last month in February, you posted a video warning that uh, you thought we were likely to see a big turn in the markets for this month in March. This week was pretty ugly. I know there's a lot of fears around continued Fed rate hikes, some of the comments around Jay Powell and collateral damage that we may now be seeing in the banking and financial sector from that. So tell us, uh, what is your assessment of what we saw happen this week? And does this basically align with some of the things that you were discussing late last month that you expected to happen? Well, my premise ever since October, and this has been the, the message we've been giving to clients, was that the rally off the October lows was nothing more than a bear market rally. And given that's my opinion, at some point, if I'm correct, we would be rolling over. Going into March, we've had a pretty big run. The market was getting overbought, and I was starting to see some cracks in terms of breadth, where there's fewer stocks above their 50-day moving average. The market, to me, looked a little bit weak. And then also, the Fed was still and is still raising interest rates. And, you know, a saying on Wall Street is the Fed raises rates until something breaks. Well, you know, that's the one thing a lot of people are saying was, what's broken? You know, what's been the first casualty of the Fed's rate cycle? It didn't have anything. You know, some people thought FTX last year, but to me, that was more just a reduction in liquidity, not not really the, I would say, the first casualty, cause, because the Fed didn't really even start raising rates. I mean, it, it you know, I think that was a little bit early in the uh, tightening cycle. 
But I think Silicon Valley Bank, which plummeted in this morning, the FDIC took it over and appointed it into receivership. Uh, this may be the first casualty. And it almost, Chris, reminds me of, I think in 2007, there was a couple of uh, Morgan Stanley hedge funds that blew up that were uh, involved with subprime. And everyone thought, oh, that's nothing. I mean, it's just a one-off event. And then obviously the economy continued to worsen and the tightening and loss in liquidity began to spread into other healthier areas that then became sick. And I think this could go down very similar to that where this could be like those, you know, hedge funds that blew up, but the big and real pain didn't occur till a little bit later. So as Warren Buffett says, it's only when the tide goes out to see who's been swimming naked. And those who are swimming naked obviously aren't prepared. They did, you know, they've mismanaged their finances. And I read an article by Cameron Kreis, who writes the Macroman column we've had on the show, and he, he does really good work. And what Cameron Kreis was pointing out was basically how risky Silicon Valley Bank is to compare to, let's say, a larger, well-run company like J.P. Morgan. And essentially what we were seeing in Silicon Valley Bank was its customers were pull, uh, beginning to pull its deposits. And as of this morning, before it went into receivership, it had about 7.5% in cash and short-term investments relative to its outstanding deposits. So that's only a fraction of what's there. So when depositors are pulling funds, they obviously need to be able to meet that, and they do so usually with short-term investments. Now, contrast that to J.P. Morgan. When you look at how much J.P. Morgan has in cash and short-term investments, it has about 48% of cash and short-term uh, investments relative to its deposits. So it's almost a, you know, it's a one to two ratio. So that's really well capitalized. You could have a massive run on the bank in terms of JP Morgan, and they would have ample liquidity to be able to meet those needs. It wouldn't have to be forced selling of other securities that it has. So obviously it was a more levered, riskier bank, but you, that's what happens when Fed raises rates. You know, those who are most levered, the most aggressive are going to be the first casualties. And Cameron Kreis says, as of right now, given how well capitalized U.S. banks are, this doesn't appear to be a complete financial meltdown like 2008. He likened it more to Orange County going into bankruptcy in 94, 1995. So, you know, definitely some pain, but not a more, you know, systemic crisis, given how more well capitalized banks are to the present. But this does tell you that we are starting to see the signs of inflicted pain caused by the Fed's tightening cycle. So the Fed is still raising rates, and the Fed is also shrinking its balance sheet. And we're going to continue to see pain inflicted on financial markets and the economy as long as the Fed continues to tighten monetary policy. Yeah, you know, as you're saying, we're just now getting into the one-year anniversary from when the Fed began to raise interest rates in March of last year. So we're just now getting into that 12-month window. And as we spoke with uh, Emily Nadell at Piper Sandler, you know, she had said it's really in that 12 to 24-month window is when you start to see the knock-on effects all the way into the economy and work itself out through uh, the financial system as well. So perhaps what we're seeing with Silicon Valley Bank, with the level of tightening, the loss of liquidity, all these things that you've been pointing to on the videos each week. We're now starting to see the, the beginning signs of some collateral damage. Like you said, in the lead up to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, though, as you've said in the past, your base case is not for that level of deterioration or damage. That's correct, Chris. We don't also have the same amount of excesses. 
I mean, we had bubbles everywhere in real estate, and real estate is one of the largest assets of households. Uh, you know, we have seen some bubbles, but those have already been deflated. A lot of the tech stocks and uh, some of the high flyers and cryptocurrency. So we didn't really see uh, the bubble in larger um, assets for U.S. households. It's more in s smaller sectors of the general market. So that's why I don't think we're going to have a complete meltdown. However, I do think, Chris, we're going to continue to have weakness in financial markets and that we're likely to see financial markets continue to head lower. And that was kind of one of the things I talked about, Chris, on Monday in our weekly investment meeting was the pain that rising interest rates were causing. And we're going to have pain no matter what, especially for the government, whether interest rates keep moving up and the government is paying higher interest rate expenses or if interest rates move down caused either by a financial downturn or an economic downturn, well, then you're going to have the budget deficit blow out, which means more supply of U.S. debt that needs to be issued to finance itself at a time when we have the debt ceiling where the government can't issue um, uh, further amounts of debt. So the government is really going to find itself in a uh, between a rock and a hard place. And that was kind of the, the main heart of what I was getting to in the uh, weekly investment meeting earlier this week. So as you've been saying on our show, we are defensively positioned. We've been talking about how we've been moving into short-term treasuries where we're earning, you know, around 5%. So, you know, I mean, that's a decent yield while we're expecting this market turbulence to play itself out. We don't think we're all the way through that. At this point, what are some of the things that you're going to be keeping on your radar when it comes to how things may play out in the weeks and months ahead? I would say one of the, the biggest things I'm going to be watching is the flow of capital. And for example, one of the things I highlighted is when we look at the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. Treasury over the next three months will have more than a trillion dollars of debt come due in each successive month. So we're talking over three trillion in debt over the next three months. And then for the remainder of the year, we have an additional three trillion of dollars that need to be refinanced. And so we're talking six trillion dollars between now and the end of the year. And this debt that is coming due will be refinanced at significantly higher interest rates back when a lot of this debt was issued years ago when interest rates were below 1%. So we're going to continue to see the net interest expense for the U.S. government to continue to go up and strain its balance sheet. And what we're also likely to see, Chris, is when we look at the Federal Reserve, like other banks, the Fed has liabilities and the Fed has assets. And the assets the Fed holds are treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And the bulk of these were accumulated in 2020 and 21 when rates were a lot lower. So we can assume that more than likely the, the Federal Reserve is earning less than 1% on its assets. Now, because it's a bank, it also has liabilities. Its liabilities are the repo facility as well as bank reserves and the Fed pays, or pays interest on those liabilities. And right now, we have basically the federal funds rate quickly moving to 5%. So because the Fed is paying more in interest expense than it's earning in interest from its assets, it's basically in a negative operating position. And whenever the Fed had a profit above its operating costs, it remitted that earning, uh, those earnings to the U.S. Treasury. So that actually helped to reduce the budget deficit. Now, the Fed has found itself in a hole, but it is a central bank. So it basically, I believe, um, looks at that as a negative asset that it will eventually, when it earns interest, uh, reduce. However, uh, 
commercial banks and regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank, they don't have that benefit. So uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, I believe their net interest margin is negative, meaning uh, how much they're earning on interest versus how much they're paying on interest. Uh, so when you're basically paying more than you're receiving, you're basically you're, you're turning to a negative interest margin. And this is typically what happens when we have an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve is when short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. This is a problem for banks because they borrow in short-term and they lend long-term. So we are seeing what happens when the Fed raises interest rates and inverts the yield curve. Financial companies or banks begin to get squeezed. As they get squeezed, they slow down their lending. No bank is going to want to basically borrow at less than what it would lend to. And so you see a seizure basically in credit where credit slows and the economy therefore slows. So as long as we have an inverted yield curve, which is the steepest since 1980, 81, I think we're going to continue to see bank lending slow down and we're going to see more and more economic pain ahead. So, Chris, as we've been discussing now, since late 2021, we've been having a cautious view on the market for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, The first thing that you warned about was when a number of different sell signals that you follow, technical sell signals, were issued across nearly every major index. This is something that we've only seen a handful of times through various market cycles. That was a pretty key warning for you, and so we began raising cash around the market peak late 2021. We've been largely holding to that view ever since. However, as you did discuss with our audience, during those October market lows, we did believe that we would see a bear market rally. We took advantage of that to deploy some cash and have since, as things started to top out earlier this year, move more defensively positioned. And as we've been saying on our show over the past few weeks, at least to park some of that cash into short-term treasuries where you're getting a good yield. So this is largely what we've been doing. And again, the message that we've been giving all along is that the Fed is raising interest rates. They're reducing their balance sheet, engaged in quantitative tightening. Banks are tightening up on lending. And the leading economic indicators are falling as well. All of this means further headwinds for the stock market, which is why we've held to this defensive and cautious position on the market since late 2021 and been holding to that. What are some of the other consequences of the Fed's tightening cycle that you think we'll see this year? You know, I have to give credit to Jim Bianco. I I love him. We're on the show. He's very astute, very sharp. One of the things he was commenting on literally a year ago was with the Fed raising interest rates and getting off of zero is the problem is is that commercial banks and regional banks were not likely to raise rates on deposits because of the amount of excess reserves that they had. They really didn't need to raise deposit rates to fight for consumers' deposits. And his, his, um, his hypothesis was that consumers would be rational see the yields that they could get in the market and T-bills versus what banks were paying and pull their deposits from the bank to earn a higher rate of interest. So that was a, a very good a prescient call because that's exactly what we saw. We saw money leave the commercial banking industry where deposits fell and we started to see that money pour into money market funds where we've seen money market assets surge And because of the lack of availability of T-bills being issued by the U.S. Treasury and because they can earn a higher interest rate at the Fed's reverse repo facility, 
Uh, we've seen money markets park funds at the Fed, which then the Fed is paying more and more interest on. So that was something that we saw, and that continues to be the case. And this is, again, one of the things that hurt Silicon Valley Bank was that they had a deposit flight and they did not have enough cash on hand. So when we look at banks, they're suffering for two reasons. One is some businesses are strapped for cash or they do not want to tap the debt markets uh, given how high interest rates are, and they're drawing down their cash deposits at banks. And when we look at consumers, we are seeing some signs that consumers are being strapped. Uh, for example, we're seeing a record low savings rate. And as that is being exhausted, we're then seeing rising credit card usage, which is not a healthy sign. Typically, credit card usage surges heading into recession as consumers lose their job and they turn to credit cards to get them through. Also, consumers are pulling bank deposits to invest in CDs and T-bills, earning nearly 5%. So we are seeing a pretty sizable reduction in the U.S. commercial bank uh, total deposits. For example, when we look at where the deposits stand right now versus a year ago, they're down about 2.5%. This is the biggest reduction in deposits ever in looking at U.S. commercial bank liabilities, uh, which are deposits going back to the early 70s. Now, even during the financial crisis, bank deposits went up largely because consumers were either selling their homes, selling their stocks, selling their bonds, and putting it in the bank. In 2001 recession, we also saw commercial bank deposits uh, rise. We also saw that during the 1991 recession. So we are not supposedly in a recession right now, and yet we are seeing the largest decline in bank deposits ever. This is a serious issue. And because, as I was mentioning to you, you know, example of J.P. Morgan, they've got roughly half of their deposits in cash. So, you know, unless you're going to see J.P. Morgan lose half of its total deposits, they're fine. They're not going to be forced liquidators of assets. However, when we look at the commercial bank industry as a whole, with this sizable reduction in deposits, banks are selling their assets to meet those, whether that's cash assets or that's treasury holdings of T-bills or longer dated treasuries or agency securities, commercial bank assets are falling because their deposits are falling. And when we look at commercial bank assets, they are lower now over, uh, by 7% compared to last year. So we are seeing, in a sense, somewhat of forced selling to meet deposit outflows. And this could be a problem because particularly when commercial bank assets and deposits are falling, they don't have as much money to reinvest into areas. And one of the examples uh, that commercial banks typically invest in are treasuries. So we have the U.S. Treasury right now needing to raise debt, as I mentioned, $3 trillion over the next three months, $3 trillion over the remainder months of the year. We're talking $6 trillion in debt. And we have the problem right now where we basically have the Fed is selling its treasury holdings, commercial banks are selling their treasury holdings, and foreigners are selling their treasury holdings as well to either stabilize their currency or for their own financing needs. There's a, you know, it's really turning into a problem of an absence of buyers. So this could be a real problem for the U.S. Treasury if it uh, falls short of finding buyers. And this could force the Fed to be buyer of last resort, similar to kind of what happened in the 2019 repo crisis, where the Fed had to step in and provide liquidity because of some dislocations in the market. 
Well, for all of you listening, I do want to encourage you, if you don't already, to watch these weekly investment videos that we post on YouTube and our website, where we go through a lot of the different charts and indicators that we're discussing today when it comes to liquidity, commercial bank lending, and how this all lines up with our view on the market and what we're doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. Chris, I do want to end on one last point because, uh, you know, we had a number of technicians come on in February when we saw the last market peak. Uh, That was the top of the bear market rally from those October lows. And, uh, you know, Tom McClellan in particular was saying that uh, he thought we were going to roll over into this month. At this point, you know, we have seen there was a lot of talk about a bullish golden cross where the 50-day moving average crosses above the longer-term 200-day moving average. Many people were pointing that to say that, you know, it looks like uh, we're in the beginning of a new bull market now. Uh, But with this week's trading action, the S&P 500 and a number of the other indices as well, you know, have seen breaks back below that long-term 200-day moving average. Technically speaking, since I know you pay attention to uh, technicals as well, what is your analysis of kind of the, the bullish golden cross, if we could see a failure of some sort, and just how you use that to gauge, you know, downside risks? You know, for me, I think one of the most important things to look at is the trend of the 200-day moving average. It's one of the easiest ways to determine bear or bull market. Um, so, for example, if it's rising, most likely you're in a bull market. If it's falling, most likely you're in a bear. And when we look at the 200-day moving average, it was starting to flatten out a bit, but uh, it's it's still heading down, in my opinion. And when you look at other areas of the market, for example, the Nasdaq 200-day is still downward sloping. But, um, you know, probably the strongest area we've seen, Chris, is the small cap stocks where their 200-day moving average was flatlining. However, over the last several days to a week, we've seen small caps actually show the, one of the worst performances. So that kind of is negating that. But the fact that they're all now below their 200-day moving average, that's a quite a negative sign to me, Chris. And more than likely, we're heading down to the December lows in the market. For the S&P, that comes in around uh, 3,775, and so that is probably going to be the next area of support to see how the market responds at that point. But uh, overall, Chris, you know the the one other negative uh, thing to note is that the upward trend from the October lows. So if you connect the October lows to the December lows, that trend line has been broken to the downside by every major indice. So uh, this does kind of suggest to me that this rally off the October low could be over. Now, you know, if the market kind of hangs in there but still trades lower and then the Fed comes out, raises rates only a quarter point and kind of hints that they're getting close to being done, that could lead to a rally. And historically speaking, the market does tend to rally after the Fed is done raising rates between that point and a recession. Now, you know, there's still a debate whether we will or will not have a recession, but I'm in the camp that we will, most likely um, kicking off in the third, fourth quarter. So historically, the market tends to rally until visible signs of recession kicking off up here and then rolls over from that point. So even if we sell off here and continue for the remainder of the month into April, that doesn't mean we can't uh, begin to rally as hopes of a Fed pause and falling inflation tends to boost the market. So I think overall, Chris, my best hunch is that we're going to be in a trading range between now and uh, probably the next two to three months until we get into the early part of summer. At that point, my expectation is we're going to start to see some real cracks in the labor market, cracks in corporate earnings, 
in other areas to really give the sign of, you know what, this whole no landing idea that we won't uh, have a downturn, we're actually going to reaccelerate. I think that's going to be utterly debunked. And I think we will have a recession and that will become apparent and send the market lower. But until you see, you know, full-blown signs of a recession, I think the market will trade sideways. So in my opinion, I think the upside is fairly limited. I would not be chasing the market, even uh, um, on dips like this where the market gets oversold. Uh, you know, our, our opinion, what we're doing for our clients is we're selling on rallies, anything that we want to sell to raise further cash. Uh, as of right now, we are at a minimum risk posture for our clients uh, because mainly I think the upside is quite limited. And I think there's still a lot of downside ahead because I don't think we've even felt the full impact of the Fed's tightening cycle, which you uh, mentioned at the opening. Uh, typically, there's a you know 12 to 24 month lag from the Fed rate hike. The Fed is still raising rates. What does that tell you? That tells you that this hike that we're likely to get later this month, we will not feel the full impact of that until March of 2024. So I do not see any signs or hope of an economic turnaround for some time, which is why we remain in a defensive posture. And even if the market rallies like it did off the October lows, I think any rally is going to be a basically a bear market rally. And that eventually, as we get into summer, the bear is going to come out of hibernation and the market's going to hit uh, either retest the October lows or possibly head to new lows. Well, Chris, I want to reiterate that you provide fantastic work and analysis through your videos and on the Smart Macro segment that we're uh, conducting today. So for any of you that would like to get in touch with Financial Sense Wealth Management to speak with our wealth advisors or any of our financial planners here to learn more about our company and how we can assist you either with your financial planning or asset management needs, you can go ahead and give us a call at 888-486-3939. Once again, that's 888-486-3939. Or you can go to our website, financialsense.com, and hit where it says Contact Us. Chris, always a pleasure to speak with you, and we definitely look forward to having you on in another two weeks. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Look forward to it. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.